This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Ella called me and said, would you do something on the lesser-known teachings in the canon? I, I said, sure, and immediately thought of the story of the quarrel at Kosambi. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, I like this particular story because it illustrates a lot of uh, different things um, and has resonances in other places in the canon. So I'm going to tell the story and... and uh, quote from different places in the canon regarding issues that have to do with, well, quarrels and disputes, obviously, and issues of delusion and clinging to views, and question about what is Sangha and how should we live. Some of these, there are some other things that are not sort of what I think of as stand and deliver Dharma, where the Buddha says, these three things, monks, and then he gives a list of three things. It's, there's, there's stuff in here. So I'm going to tell the story first. Um, and uh, it's spread through several places in the canon. It, it occurred after about seven years after the Buddha's awakening. So the Buddha would have been in his early 40s, and there was some sangha around by that time. And so the uh, it seems that there were two Bhikkhus, I'll tell. I'll read some some texts, and you know how some of the texts go. It's repetitive, and 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 then repeats the repetition. So I'll sort of summarize there. So it seems that there were two bhikkhus in one monastery: one an expert in the discipline, and the other a teacher of the discourses. So it's interesting that here is a split between the people who are into rules and the people who are into insight. You might recognize those different personality types in the world today. The latter, the the expert in the in the discourses, went to the latrine one day and left a vessel there with some unused washing water in it. The other went in later and found it there. He asked the teacher of the discourses, "Did you leave the vessel with water in it there?" "Yes." "Did you know that it's an offense?" No, I did not. Well, it constitutes an offense, friend. Um, Well, that was the basis of the dispute. The teacher um, of the discourses went away thinking, you know, it wasn't really an offense. And the, the expert in the discipline told his pupils, this teacher of discourses does not know that he has committed an offense. They told the, the the students of the of this other your preceptor has committed an offense though he's under the impression that he is not and the disciples expert said first that there was he said no you guys you lied you said there wasn't an offense now you're saying it was so you're a liar you're deluded and and they were off to the races but now quarrels brawls and disputes broke out in the midst of the Sangha. The bhikkhus wounded each other with verbal arrows. They could not settle their litigation. 
Abhikkhu then went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he stood to one side and told him what was taking place. And he said, Lord, it would be good if the Blessed One went to those bhikkhus out of compassion. So, you know, the Buddha did. There are several accounts of, of uh, the speeches that he gave. He went to both sides. He didn't take sides. He went to both sides. And the, uh, the recording crew captured these words. What can you possibly know? What can you possibly see that you take to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers? That you can neither convince each other nor be convinced by others. That you, neither, that you can neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by them. <clears throat> what is so compelling that it takes a higher priority than getting along? But basically, the, the bhikkhus said, don't worry, your pretty little enlightened head about this, we'll take care of it. The Blessed One thought, these misguided men seem obsessed, it's impossible to make them see, and he got up and he went away. He got up and went away because it was unpleasant. The Buddha prefer, had preferences. He preferred not to be with quarreling monks. So he went to see his cousin, Anuruddha. Now the Buddha's family was a large, somewhat dysfunctional affair, but Anuruddha was was uh, um, was a supporter. Anuruddha was living in the forest with two other monks. So the Buddha went to him, and after the the ritual greetings and niceties aside, he said. Um, I hope that all of you are well, that you're comfortable, and that you have no trouble on account of alms food. We are well, blessed one. We are comfortable and we have no trouble on account of alms food. I hope you live in accord, Anuruddha, as friendly and undisputing as milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do, Lord. But Anuruddha, how do you do this? He didn't say, I just left a bunch of who don't or maybe he did but the tape was edited the venerable Anaruta replied Lord as to that I think that it is a gain and good fortune for me here that I'm living with such companions in the holy life I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones both in public and in private and I think why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? And I act accordingly. We are different in body, Lord, but only one in mind. The other two said the same thing. That is how we live in concord, friendly and undisputing as milk and water. It's a fairly high bar. So then... They spent the evening talking Dharma. Now when the Blessed One had instructed, urged, roused, and encouraged them with talk of the Dharma, he rose from his seat and went to live in the Rakita jungle at the root of an auspicious solitree. While he was alone in retreat, this thought arose in his mind. Formerly, I lived in discomfort, Pestered by those Kosambi bhikkhus who quarrel, brawl, wrangle, harangue, and litigate in the midst of the Sangha, 
Now I am alone and companionless, living at ease and in comfort away from all of them. Then he tells a story about a tusker elephant that had the same relationship with his, what do they call him, a tribe, a bunch of, a herd. There you go. And, uh, and the Buddha decided that living alone was appropriate. So let me just bring you up to date to what happened. The end of the story is what happened back in, uh, back in Kosambi. Meanwhile, the lay followers of Kosambi thought, these are the, the villagers, these venerable Kosambi bhikkhus are doing us great harm. They've plagued the Blessed One till he has gone away. Let us no longer pay homage to them or rise up for them or give them reverential salutation or to treat them with courtesy. Let us not honor, respect, revere, or venerate them. Let's give them no more alms food, even when they come for it. So when they get no honor, respect, reverence, or veneration from us, when they are regularly ignored, they will either go elsewhere or leave the Sangha or make amends to the Blessed One. Well, the story quickly resolves. They said, well, maybe it wasn't a dispute. Oh, no, it was. Yes, it was. And then they go and they rush and they, they make up. So that's basically the account. And there's some interesting things. I like the fact, you know, the Buddha has preferences. He liked to be comfortable. He didn't like to be pestered. You know, there's sometimes we have a sense that the Buddha was beyond all of that. But I think it's interesting also that, you know, we also think of the Buddha as you know, we hear the stories in the, in, the, in the canon. The Buddha says, all things subject to arising are subject to passing away. And, oh, everybody goes, geez, I should have thought of that. And the whole Sangha of a Thousand Buddhas are awakened on the spot. There's, you know, those kind of stories, and you sort of think that the Buddha is pretty persuasive. You know, maybe you had to be... But he sat down with these guys and said, cool it, and they just didn't. No, it's it's interesting because the story of the Buddha, the Buddha is made presented in the canon largely as a charismatic, powerful figure. The first guy who saw him after his awakening said, "What are you, a god, a deva? What are you?" And the Buddha said, "I'm awake." But here he was awake, and uh, here he was awake, and they just it had no consequence. I think that's interesting too may not be a teaching, but it's something to learn from. So I'm, I'm, I want to talk a little bit about quarrels and disputes. Because quarrels and disputes <clears throat> were an early issue for the Buddha. Um, in the Atakavaga, which is one of the oldest of the texts, the Buddha is recorded talking about this He says, fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarreling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation I felt, seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to shelter in this world, I saw that this world lacked substance and that there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Um, Lee Brasington 
thinks that actually the, this disputing is what drove the Buddha you know, into homelessness to seek resolution. The story of the, the traditional story of the heavenly messengers doesn't occur in the early texts applied to the Buddha. It, it happens to an earlier Buddha. But the tradition over time came to see it as, as the Buddha's reasoning for leaving home. He saw the four heavenly messengers, the old person, the sick person, the corpse, and the, the uh, forest renunciate. And then that was a vision for him, but Lee thinks that maybe it was quarreling. Because it was a, a huge issue. We, we are, as people, we are, we are, do we take sides? I mean, our identity is built on the sides that we take. You know, just not giants or Dodgers or Apple or Android or Democrat and Republican. The Buddha didn't take sides, and yet we find ourselves... Well, taking sides reminds us, I think, it's having a side and knowing where we are is a security thing. You know, we want, our, we want to be safe and secure and comfortable, and if our model of the world, if our understanding, well, we expect it to be, we expect it to be accurate somehow, don't we think? We sort of know what's generally, we can find our way home and that kind of stuff. But the Buddha said something really interesting. He said, I teach a dharma that does not dispute with anyone. In different places in the Majjhima, he says, a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. Samyutta, he says, Bhikkhus, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, the world disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Or again in the Majjhima. Friend, I assert and proclaim a teaching in such a way that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas. In this generation with its recluses and brahmins, the princes, and its people. There's a, that's a powerful koan. Where, how do you, what kind of an understanding makes it possible to live without disputing? Any of you guys get into uh, disagreements? Disputes? Probably, you know. And yet he's, he's saying, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't contend. He doesn't contend with the world. Hmm. How do we hold our beliefs? I think one of the reasons, you know, the neuroscience people are now saying, I've discovered a thing called terror management theory. Uh, Analio Bhikkhu referred to it, and he's saying, you know, that we do a lot of what the, this is a psychological Western psychological theory. A lot of what we do has to, you know, is motivated by our desire for security and stability. We cling to our beliefs in order to save ourselves from uncertainty and fear, stability. You know, you can sometimes this clinging to belief 
is described as, as habit or as a defilement sometimes. It's one of the asavas. It could also be seen as an evolutionary advantage. If we, de- if, if we, we depend on our model of the world. I mean, our brain lives inside our skull, and it looks out and hears we got some tactile stuff going, and then we got a huge model inside our brain, which is our understanding of what's going on. So it's to our advantage to rely on that. I mean, if a tiger's coming at you and you say, is that really a tiger, or is this just my perception of a tiger? I mean, if you're involved in deep philosophical inquiry, you probably wind up as lunch before you wind up passing on your genes. So we've all, we depend on our model for our survival. But the question really isn't how do we live without views, because how do we, how do we, how do we even, the world is made of our concepts of it, the map of it, the, the, our understanding of what's going on. We can't separate our experience from our understanding. So how do we hold our views in such a way that we don't cling? Well, there, 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 there are different answers for this. One, one, one answer, one, one way of approaching it is to say that uh, what the Buddha says, which is don't go beyond what you can know for yourself. You know, he says... What have you got going here? You got, we got colors and shapes, right? We've got sounds. We got tactile sensations, smell and taste, when we're when we're eating, and then we've got all these all these thoughts. But they're just thoughts, and when we assume that the thoughts actually are representative of what they are thoughts about. Well, we, do we, we might not even have a choice. I'm not sure we have a choice. But when we get it wrong, we're surprised. If we operate out of delusion, then we'll be surprised. Delusion, we don't like to think of ourselves as deluded. Deluded, often, you know, the idea is we don't see clearly, there's cloudy vision, distortion, muddy. But I, I, you know, in this sense, delusion is something we do. You know, delusion is something we do. If we think about it, we all know that we're in hospice right now. Anybody not get that? You know, the object of hospice is to provide the highest quality of life for the time remaining. It's the way hospice describes. But do we want to live as if we're in hospice? No, we don't. We don't even. We don't even want to hear it. So we we. We, we just don't want to acknowledge it. Often there are metaphysical claims made about things that are beyond what we know. You know um, what, what, what Lee Brazinger calls the immortality project. You know, we imagine heavens or hells or future lives or you know, somehow legacies that left. We just don't. And so we make claims about the world that we really don't know for sure. 
So if you, if you make a statement that, um, you know, this is a pen, it's different than saying, the way I see this, it's a pen. My perception is, my understanding is. But we make a claim that this is the way it is. And, and that's, you know, uh, we make claims about Donald Trump, for example. I, I just love Donald Trump. So we all, you know, have there's reactions to him all the time. We can get ourselves worked up. I think it's really fun to watch how we can get ourselves worked up. But, but what do we really know? We have our own experience with him. We have our experience with the world, and we make claims, you know. Search is a candy mint, search is a breath mint. We, we, we make claims about the way the world is. And when people say, I mean, it can be, we think of it as opinions sometimes. But I had an interaction with a, a, a checker at the supermarket uh, some time ago. You know, I'm, Davis is a university town, so it's a young lady behind the counter who says, how are you doing? And I never liked those questions. So I, I, over the years, I've tried different kinds of responses to them. And, and at that time, I, I was trying, things seemed to be looking up. Nowadays, I say, so far, so good. <laughs> um, but anyway, her response was, oh, good, I'm glad you're not one of those end-of-the-world types. I'm getting married, and I'm looking forward to, you know, but, uh, but I'm kind of concerned. I said, oh, don't worry. The universe has been around about 13 billion years. We probably have some more to go. And she said, no, not 13. Well, I'm in a university town. I thought she was a holdout for 18 billion years. But no, she, was, she, she said it was only 7,000. And then she said that all that radiocarbon stuff wasn't as accurate as they say. And I kind of lost it. <laughs> I mean, I actually did. I said, well, what about astronomical measurements? See, that was not good. I should have said, well, con- congratulations on getting married. I'm older and wiser now. (laughs) But what we think of as fact, as the way things are, is our vision. I mean, really, how much do we know about what this is? You know, science tells us 96% of whatever they think of as the universe, is dark energy, dark matter. We don't know what it is, but we know it's there. Whatever it is, it's there. And the other 4%, what do we know about that? (laughs) You know, I mean, we just showed up, and we have this understanding, and people go to war over it. You know? Guys in the prison say, do you believe in God? And I say, what do you mean? Are we talking Allah or Jehovah? Are we talking, I mean, you know, <laughs> people fight over that stuff because it makes them, you know, uncertain about their map, which is a threat. So we can, we can not go beyond our understanding. And when we talk about things that we don't have experience about, say, this is my view, my understanding. It's purely by subjective understanding. I'm not making a reality claim. So you can do that. You can also acknowledge 
that really whatever understanding you've got. Um, Christopher Titmus used to say, maybe, maybe he still does, whatever you think is wrong. He tended to be provocative. But really, our understanding is certainly not, it's just our understanding. It's not the same as somebody else's understanding. One of us is right or wrong, who knows? We don't have an, an external standard to, we can look to each other and methodologies and stuff, but basically our, our understanding is our understanding, but to expect it to be accurate <clears throat> sets us up for disappointment and crankiness when things don't go the way we expect them to go. I mean, if we buy a lottery ticket and we don't win, big deal, right? I mean, we wanted to win. That's why we paid our dollar for whatever you pay for a lottery ticket. But, you know, we didn't expect to win, really. But if you expect that justice will prevail, if you expect that good work will be honored, and it's not, crankiness. So it's not just the wanting, it's the deluded expectation that satisfaction might be possible. When we expect, if you don't expect to be satisfied, then when you're not satisfied, big deal. When you are, when you get what you wanted, well, how nice. But it's the expectation of satisfaction. It's not that we shouldn't want to be satisfied. It's not that we shouldn't want things to be permanent. But we shouldn't expect them to be. When we expect them to be, we suffer when, when they aren't. So we can recognize that our understanding of things is diluted. And there isn't much we can do about it. There's no, it's not like we can clear things up, but we can know what we know. We can say, I don't know whether it's good, bad, right, wrong, whatever, but here's my experience. We don't have to go beyond our experience and believe our fantasies. I think it's interesting that the Buddha goes off into the, into the forest to be by himself. I, th- I think there's a sense, I've gotten, you know, that you may have, if you've been on retreats, you've heard this, this quoted, when the Buddha and Ananda are standing out, looking out over the Sangha of thousands. I always wondered how they pulled that off with, without a good PA system. I mean, here we are, you've got, what, 30 people, and we've got, anyway, I guess you had to be there. And, the, and Ananda says to the Buddha, "This is this is uh, the Sangha business. Pretty pretty big, pretty pretty big deal. It must be half the holy life." And the Buddha says, "Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the noble eightfold path." So we have, I think that that passage has been promoted by the tradition because it supports 
Sangha supports the, the or, it supports the organization. But the Buddha also has a, a second theme that runs through his teachings. In the Samyutta Nikaya, he says, For a sociable person, there are allurements. On the heels of allurement, pain. Seeing allurements draw back, wander alone. If for company you find a wise and prudent friend who leads a good life, you should, overcoming all impediments, keep his company joyously and mindfully, sort of like Ananda and his friends. If for company you cannot find a wise and prudent friend who leads a good life, then, like a king who leaves behind a conquered kingdom, or like a lone elephant in the elephant forest, you should go your way alone. Better it is to live alone. There is no fellowship with a fool. Live alone and do no evil. Be carefree like an elephant in the elephant forest. You know, we take refuge in the Sangha and the Buddha is taking refuge in the forest. It's an interesting image because the the teaching doesn't particularly match the, the story. <clears throat> what does refuge in the Sangha mean? Well, you know, the Buddha says when a monk has admirable people, his friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. I don't envision any other single factor like admirable friendship as doing so much for a monk in training. A monk who has, is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. So there's value in friendship, but it's not a principle. It's, you know, once it, from the Buddha, it would be the middle path again. And that doesn't mean, well, instead of a lot of them or none, we'll just have a few. You know, is Sangha. What is, what is this sangha that we take refuge in? It's the refuge in, the, in the, the community that supports our awakening. It might be that the community that we hang out with is really about going to see uh, Groundhog Day yet again. Here's the Buddha on topics of conversation. He comes out and his monks are talking and he says, what's up? That's sort of my translation of the Pali. And they tell him that they're, what they're talking about. And the Buddha says, hmm, it's not right, monks, that sons of good families on having gone forth out of faith from home to the homeless life should get engaged in such topics of conversation. Conversation about kings or presidential campaigns. Robbers, Wall Street barons. (laughs) Ministers of state. We ever chit-chat about that stuff? Armies. We're sending more troops to Syria. Alarms and battles. More of the same. Or or how about food and drink? This is the Buddha's list. Food and drink. 
I always think of the, the uh, food section of the New York Times. Clothing? That's the style section of the Times. Furniture, garlands, and scents? That's the advertising in the Times. Mm. Relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, the countryside. (laughs) These are topics of conversation he deemed not suitable. Women and heroes. The gossip of the street and the well. Tales of the dead, that's the obituary section. Tales of diversity, the creation of the world. You know, was there one big bang? Or did anybody see the story? Multiple big bangs? Yeah, pretty. It's it's possible. It's out there. Is there just one big? So there's a lot of. They're not so big anymore. Creation of the world and of the sea, talk of whether things exist or not. Speculative views. You know, these, are, these, these kind of conversations are not necessarily going to lead one to cultivate the Eightfold Path. So this particular, this particular uh, story includes a lot about how we should live. How should we live? The possibility of setting aside what one wants to do and doing what others want to do. Now, this isn't, this isn't particularly the kind of advice. He's not talking about the kind of advice that has traditionally been given to women, which is, you know, don't advance your own. I mean, he's not talking, he's talking about the renunciation of greed and aversion. You know, anger and ill will. Just not pursuing the goals that come to us with anger and ill will. Setting aside what they might do and do what, I mean, what I might do and do what they might do. There's there's friendliness and compassion in that in that model it's a tough model because what we want we want so he's he he gives us he gives us some instruction in this whole story about our relationship to our thoughts about the world our understanding about <clears throat> what you know what we should expect Don't fall for the informally. He says, "Don't fall for the distortions of perception. Don't assume. Don't don't think that what is impermanent, which is anything we experience, might be permanent, or that anything might be capable of providing satisfaction. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. No substantiality. Everything is changing. Nothing stays put." And there's nothing that can satisfy. And we don't like that particularly. We spend our lives... <clears throat> well, delusion, one of, my, one of my teachers likes to say that delusion 
is being firmly committed to the way things aren't. And delusion would be the opposite of right view. So right view, first element of the Eightfold Path, would be the understanding that enables us to live without suffering. Delusion would be the understanding which ensures that we will suffer. And it's not that you can come up with a view that's that's correct. You know, that's 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 objectively true. Peter Jennings once said, "Objectivity means different things to different people." It's not like there's some truth out there which, if we just can find it out, we'd be fine. But we and. You know, we can craft an understanding. The, the, the Eightfold Path is to be cultivated. So we can craft an understanding or cultivate an understanding that enables us to live without suffering, without making things worse for ourselves and others. But we don't do it by being right. So the Quarrel of Kosambi talks about renunciation, not just of what we want and in favor of what will serve others, but also renunciation of our views, of abandonment, not of the views themselves, of our understanding, but of the assumption that they are right. They're just ours. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. But we, when we make a claim about it being, my idea is true for you. You know, it's it can be you and what army. <laughs> so I particularly like this story because it there's there are things that are illustrated by it that are not didactic, that are not stand and deliver teachings. The Buddha has preferences. He's not firmly committed to, well, he's committed to awakening. Sangha is what helps awaken. And finding that place where you don't contend with anyone. And also, he talks about times when you're, con- the, the awakened moment when your, your disputes with the world come to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.